morning. If you're visiting with us, I just want to echo what Jeff said. Welcome this morning. We're glad you're here. My name is Jesus. I'm one of the pastors on staff. And if you're visiting, I, I did meet somebody, a couple who's visiting for the first time. Like I said, I'm not the normal guy, so you're good. Come back next week. All right. No, it's a joy to be here this morning. Uh, open your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 5. This morning, welcome again uh, and happy Father's Day. If you're here, you're celebrating Father's Day, we celebrate with you, especially if you're visiting. If, if Father's Day is what brings you in, we're glad you're here. And uh, happy Father's Day to those fathers. This morning, we're going to be talking about the roles of the husband and the wife. Over the last several weeks, we've, we've started a series on marriage here in church. And uh, what is marriage? And why is it important? And what are the values there? And so as we get into it this week, I just want to, before we start into the roles of the husband and the wife, I want to recap what Pastor Rick has shown us over the last couple of weeks, okay? So uh, the, first, the first week's a couple of the things that, Mary, or, excuse me, that Rick emphasized for us, b- really big one, marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant, okay? A covenant is a word that we're not familiar with in our culture very much these days. The closest thing we can kind of associate with it is a contract, but marriage is more than a contract, And that's what Pastor Rick was emphasizing to us. It's a promise. It's a promise that two people make to each other that has lasting implications. And when the terms of this promise fade, the covenant doesn't fade with it. You work through those things. You keep that covenant. And this is not just marriage. In Scripture, sometimes the the consequences of a covenant, if you broke the covenant, was death. A covenant is a serious thing. And God uses a covenant to picture marriage for us in in Scripture. Excuse me. The second thing that Rick reminded us of, marriage is purposeful. It's about more than just our pleasure, my pleasure, my preferences, my you fill in the blank. Our marriages say something to the world around us. If you're a Christian, your marriage says something to the people around you. What does it say? What does it say? It says something about God, the God that you claim to serve, What does it say to those people? The third thing that Pastor Rick reminded us of last week, gospel-minded living is the core of a God-honoring marriage. Pastor Rick used this term last week. It was so helpful. He He called ourselves me monsters. You remember this? Me monsters. Uh, We want what we want. We want our preferences. We want to see our desires appeased. And Pastor Rick said this last week, Grace changes us from being a me monster, a glory thief, trying to bring all of the attention and focus on myself, and it brings it to God. When you, get in, when you get it into your bones that your biggest problem is you, and that Christ came to rescue you from yourself, not from your spouse, and to rescue you to himself, then you start to understand everything more clearly, including your marriage. If we're going to understand how marriage works appropriately, then we need to understand ourselves first. And we are sinners. And we are bent on satisfying ourselves. It takes the Spirit of God to change that in us. And He does. Amen? We're grateful that He does. And so this week, as we continue in our series, we're going to start looking at what it practically looks like to fulfill these truths in our marriages? What does it look like to be a husband and to be a wife? And as I was preparing, you know, this this week for this message, I was just thinking about what does our culture, how does our culture see 
marriage. Realistically, in our culture today, gender is fluid, monogamy is boring, and marriage itself is outdated and unnecessary. And the things that you're going to hear me say this morning, I'm just saying it up front, they're not culturally acceptable. They're just not. But church, being countercultural is not anything new for the Bible. The Bible has withstood the test of time. It's withstood culture. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so we come to Scripture to see what does Scripture say about being a husband and being a wife. So before we even get into the details, why are, why are roles important at all? Why not, just live your, why not just live your marriage the way you want to do it? The way it feels best, the way it seems best to you. I have a couple ideas. The first one, well, because God made marriage. Literally, because God said so. There's a husband and there's a wife because God said so. My three-year-old is getting to the stage where she's starting to ask a lot of questions, right? Well, why? Well, why? Every now and then it just comes back to that. Sorry, kid. God said so. (laughs) Next subject. But God gives us more information, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage is one man and one woman joined together as one flesh. We're already into culturally unacceptable ideas, right? Line number one. (laughs) This is not going well. The second reason roles are important If God made marriage, then it stands to reason that he defines the roles. Marriage is his thing. So he tells us what those roles are. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. There's a lot of passages in Scripture that have directives and commands like this. I just just put this up to show you there are roles to be had. Wives and husbands and parents. And when God made marriage and he made family, he designed these specific roles for that thing, for that institution. And again, each of these roles flies directly in the face of our culture today. The third reason that I think roles are important is that marriage helps us understand the relationship between God and us. As we look at the whole of Scripture, Marriage is there throughout. The institution of marriage is in Scripture from the beginning to the end. So we, the Scripture starts in Genesis, right? God makes creation, he makes man, and then he makes man a partner, a woman. And he puts them together in a relationship. They're married, right? And as the story continues, God establishes a people for himself. He calls it Israel. And the relationship that he uses to describe how he relates to Israel is a marriage, God is the husband and Israel is the bride. And as we go to the New Testament, the description we have is that Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. Okay, that's us. We're we're the church. We're the bride of Christ. And at the end, in Revelation 19, we see this banquet and there's a groom and the banquet is called the marriage supper of the lamb. It's a wedding feast. There's a celebration Because the groom is being united with his bride in Revelation. 
It's all throughout Scripture. And, and let's look at these stories with me one more time. God makes man, he makes woman, he puts them in the garden, and what happens? They turn on each other, right? From the very beginning, the first man and the first woman, before kids. <laughs> right? Didn't make it that far. And yet, what does God do for them? He's merciful to them. He's merciful to them. In their punishment, even, in their curse, we have what Rick called last week the proto-gospel. Even in their curse, there's hope that God gives. And then we look at Israel and God in the Old Testament, and what does Israel do in that relationship? They abandon God. They go to false, false gods and false idols around them. And what does God do for Israel? He's faithful to them. Pastor Rick showed us the covenant made with Abraham, and the animals are split, and God goes through together. Or Excuse me, God goes through by himself. Showing that whether Israel is faithful to him or not, he's going to be faithful to her. Amazing. In the New Testament, we have Christ in the church. That's us. How are you doing? How's your walk with the Lord? Are you maintaining that perfectly? I'm not. And yet, what does God do for us? He gives us his spirit to guide and to teach and to encourage and in Revelation, the people at the, at the supper are these suffering servants of God. They've suffered. They've endured. They've endured and they've made it. And they get to see the groom, Christ, and, and have this feast with him. And there's this reward for their faithfulness. All throughout Scripture, God is using marriage to show us something. I think I was talking to Jordan about this idea as I flushed it out this week, and I don't think this, I think this statement is fair and true. God created the institution of marriage to help us understand the very nature of our relationship to Him. God made marriage as a tool to show us how we relate to Him. Why are things like infidelity and abuse and neglect so disgusting? Yes, they violate the victim, absolutely, and that's horrible. But there's something spiritual that's happening here because not only do they violate the inherent dignity of victims, but by participating in those sins, we're saying something about God that's terribly false. As a husband representing God to my family, I'm saying that God would abandon us and that God would defile us if he felt like it if he got tired of us. And oh, how wrong that is. We just see it all throughout Scripture. God is faithful to his people, even when we're not. And as we'll see shortly here in Ephesians 5, the way Paul sums this up is he says, the mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage helps us understand the relationship between us and God. This is why I think the roles are important. This is why I think we need to honor the way God has designed marriage. Look in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 22. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 919, 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 919. 
Verse 22, Paul says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In the context of this passage, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, Paul shifts focus to this practical application. The first three chapters are these amazing truths about Jesus and who Jesus is. And then in in chapter 4, the first verse, he says, Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. If Jesus is these things, then live like this. And then in chapter 5, he just keeps rolling into these familial structures. What we see here is just Paul is showing us this is just part of Christian living. This structure in the family is how God designed it because that's part of what the Christian life is. And so I want to look today at husbands and then wives and see what is it that God has called us to do in those roles. And so men, husbands, I have three roles, ideas, highlights that I want to bring out to you. Let me say this at the front end. These are not exhaustive, okay, for either side. There's whole books written on any one, on all three, on each role. I mean, we can be here all week long. But I think these are important, and so I want to highlight these for you, and I believe they're faithful. All right? So we start at verse 25 with the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. This word love in English is kind of ambiguous, right? I love my wife. If you know her, she's easy to love, right? I love my wife. But I love cookies. And how does she know if I love her like I love my wife or if I love her like I love cookies? It's not very clear, right, in English. There's context that we have to factor into this thing. In Greek, it's much more clear. There's six words for love. And each one of them expresses a different aspect of love. There's a word for a friendship love, a romantic love. What is this love? What is this word? Husbands, love your wives. In 1 John chapter 4, We read this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves God, excuse me, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. This is the same word here. The the, the word here in Ephesians is agape. And this word here, God is agape. So whatever God's calling husbands to do, it's literally what God is himself. Husbands, agape your wives. That's a high calling. That's a high calling. So what is this? How can we define this in a helpful way? For you note takers, here it is. 
Love is giving for the needs of another without expecting anything in return. Love is giving for the needs of another without expecting anything in return. In the world, love is a passion. It's a feeling. You make me feel good. I want your body. I like the things you do for me. But when that passion fades, that love diminishes real quick. Really quickly. This is not what the world says love is. Look again at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He gave, giving for the needs of another. So if love is giving, how much are you asked to give to your wife? What does Paul say there in verse 25? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Look at this verse from Philippians. Paul says it this way here. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the example of giving that we have been called to live up to. And so men, how much of yourself are you willing to give to your wife? Are you willing to give all of yourself the way Christ gave all? Here it is. Somebody's at your door screaming and hollering, and when they come in the door, they're going to take your family from you. Who is willing, men, to die for your family? Yeah, right? We're men. Yes. We have guns and knives. Well, here you go. If you're willing to die for your wife, are you like maybe willing to put the socks from the floor actually in the hamper? <laughs> Ooh. This is scales a little bit off here, right? You see, the problems that I see most often with men in counseling is that the problems that we encounter in daily life are not fight-to-the-death kind of problems. They're pick-up-your-socks kind of problems. In day-to-day life, there's so many more opportunities to love your wife by picking up your socks than there are by risking your life. But if you're not looking for those opportunities, you're going to miss them. And if you miss them, You're failing to fulfill this command to love your wife. What does this look like, giving in these small ways? Give up the weekend with the guys. Put the phone down and give her your attention. Stop Stop spending money on those things that you know aren't necessary. Stop pretending that things are okay when she asks you to talk about that thing. Stop telling her she's the problem when the truth is that you don't want to do the hard work of changing your habits that keep causing these conflicts. Love your wife. Give up your preferences. 
Give up your selfish desires. Give yourself to your wife. What do you get? What are you going to do instead? Go on a walk. Sit on the couch. Apparently, that's a thing. <laughs> All right, ladies. Tell me if I learned it. I think I learned it this year. You ready? It's not the activity that matters. It's the intentionality that counts. All the ladies said? Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. We got to get this, guys. Is your heart actively looking for opportunities to love your wife sacrificially? Or are you looking to satisfy your own pleasures? Love is giving for the needs of another without expecting anything in return. Husbands, love your wives. The second thing that we've been called to as husbands is to lead our wives. Wives are called to follow, and so it stands. Somebody needs to lead. Somebody needs to lead. And so the question we need to ask is, what is the nature of the leadership that you've been called to exercise? I propose to you that you've been called to be a servant leader. If you think about the life of Jesus, just big picture, do you see him more in, in, the, in the Gospels giving to other people or taking from other people? Do you see him serving other people or receiving from other people more? What do you see? Serving, giving, right? His disposition was other-centered. In John chapter 13, Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He's having this dinner with his disciples. And we get this, this record of this, this dinner. This is what John says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, and tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with his towel that was wrapped around him. Foot washing was a pretty common practice. Sandals, dirty floors, dirt floors. Then you go into a house, the, the table's low, and you usually recline. So your feet kind of end up next to people, around people's heads and stuff. So it was common to wash feet. Usually, if you had the means, a servant washed feet in the house. What was Jesus thinking before he washed these, these guys' feet? Knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. Does that sound like human thinking? Like, this is Jesus recognizing who he is. I'm God. I made all of this stuff. I made all of these people. He's rightly thinking about himself as divine in this moment, and he could have very easily said, hey, let's go wash feet. I'm God, don't you know? I made all this stuff. Let's get to it. Where's the servant? And instead, instead of flexing his authority in that way, he uses it to serve. And we saw the same thing in Philippians. He took on the form of a servant. Man, there will definitely be times in the life of your family that you're going to have to exercise uh, authority in a way that is determinative. But just, so, just like we saw with loving, there are far more opportunities for you to lead sacrificially than there are for you to lead by command. There are far more opportunities for you to lead sacrificially than there are for you to lead by command. If you find yourself having to remind your wife that you're in charge, something's off. 
Something's off. Servant leadership is what Christ modeled for us. All right? What does it mean to be a servant? It means you serve. It means you serve. How do we serve? Dishes, laundry, diapers, chores. It means you set aside your preferences and desires for those of your family. You go to work, you come home, what do you want? Nice meal, some peace and quiet. Maybe you do deserve it. Maybe you are a good employee. That's a good thing. That's a good desire. That's not wrong. But then you come in the door and there's no peace and quiet and there's no meal. Where does your heart go? Do you get mad because that expectation wasn't met? Or do you see an opportunity to serve your family? You see, a lot of guys think, I left work. I'm done with my job. And now I get to come home and relax. That's wrong. The real perspective is, I left my first job, and now I'm going to my second job. My job as a dad and a husband and a father. And reality is, that second job is probably more important than the first job. Because that's the one that God's going to hold you accountable for. How you led your wife and how you led your kids. When, when you walk into our house through the garage, the first thing you see is the sink. There's an island right there. And there are many days that I'm greeted by a sink full of dishes. And there was a day earlier in our marriage that that would have really been a frustration for me. But this is something that I've worked really, really hard for the Lord to change in my heart. And what I've come to is, when I walk in, what I see is an opportunity to stand at that sink and pray for my wife. To pray for my family. To be grateful for what God has given us. And so I come in, my wife's usually cooking at the time, and that's probably why there's dishes. And we do our thing as my children gallivant about to greet me, Daddy. Right? We have dinner. I get up and I go start doing the dishes. And I pray for my wife, for my kids, because he's good. The true test of how well you're doing as a servant is how well you respond when you're treated like one. The true test of how well you're doing as a servant is how you respond when you're treated like one. Are you serving? One other aspect of leadership that I want to highlight here is you need to be the initiator in your relationship. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, We love because he first loved us. In our life, in our salvation, Jesus initiated that relationship. He came to us. He opened our eyes. He gave us the Spirit, and the Spirit comforts us. The Spirit brings us joy. He convicts us. He reminds us of Scripture. Christ initiates with us, and we're called to love and lead in the way he does. And so, husbands, you should be the ones initiating with your wives in peacemaking, in affection, in relationship, in conversation. When there's a conflict, go to your wife and initiate the resolution. Don't wait for her to bring it up. When your marriage is struggling, you be the one to reach out for counseling. Don't make her 
Step up into the role you're supposed to have and do that. We're called to lead like servants. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as Christ came not to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. Lead with a servant's heart. Lead with a servant's heart. The third role that I want to highlight quickly is that you need to be learning your family, learning your wife. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This word understanding, it's a generic word. It means to know. The literal translation here, it just says live according to knowledge. But knowledge of what? Knowledge of what? Everything. Yourself, your wife, your family, the culture you live in, the scriptures. Why? Because being a husband is a huge task. It's a huge task. You have a lot of responsibility. You need to be informed. You need to be able to lead your family in a way that honors the Lord. Live with understanding. And as it pertains to your wife, God gives us grace, right? To understand what do they love? What annoys them? What encourages them? Here's one that I pulled out of a book. What are the habits that you have that are difficult for them to put up with? That wasn't a fun one. That wasn't a, that wasn't a fun conversation. That was a hard one. Here's another one. What stresses her out? That's a good one to know. Because when you see that coming, you can step in and you can love and lead her in through those moments. What stresses her out? Showing her honor as the weaker vessel. This line is probably just referring to the physical weakness. We're just different. God made us differently. But essentially, meant your wife is not one of the guys. She's different. Treat her as such. Instead of thinking weaker as in like it's cheap or it's, it's weak, it's not worth much, think of it the other way. This vessel is made of like fine china, beautiful linen. It's delicate. It's precious. It should be treated with extra care. Why? Because she's an heir. She's an heir of the grace of life. Show her honor because she's an heir. Second Timothy calls your wife someone who will reign with Christ. She will reign with Christ. When you see her and when you talk to her, is that what you see? Or do you see something else? Show her honor. What happens if you don't? Your prayers will be hindered. There are not many warnings like this in Scripture. This is a scary one. What does it mean? You can do that research. Suffice it to say the warning is well taken. If you do not love your wife as God has called you to love her, your prayers will be hindered. Your relationship with God will be hindered. And so husbands, this is the calling we've been called. Love selflessly, lead sacrificially, and learn. If you're sitting here thinking, man, this guy's just pouring it on. Yeah. This is no small task. 
This is no small task. Your goal as a leader should be to make her think, wow, I don't deserve to be treated this well. I don't deserve to be loved this well. The best compliment our wives could ever give us is, the love my husband shows me really reminds me of the love that Jesus has for me. That's what we should be aiming for. Ladies, three ideas for you. Help, follow, and respect. We go back to Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. The first one, help, comes again from the very beginning of Scripture. God made man, and he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper for him. God made the woman as a compliment to Adam. She was made to help him in ways that the existing creation couldn't. And there's something special when you read the text in Genesis about the way God made the woman. God made everything. He made the man from dirt. He breathed life into the dirt. And then when he made the woman, he took a rib out of the man and he made the woman. Why didn't he just make her out of dirt? As we're reading literature, we have to ask questions like this. Why not just do it again? Put longer hair on it. Right? The very act of her creation shows something. She's special. She's different. She's not like the man. And Adam's response is like, this is not anything that I've seen. Because she's not. There's something special about the woman that sets her apart from the rest of creation. And the text shows us that. Some of the cultural things that we've seen and heard and experienced we can read negative connotations into this word, helper. Those negative connotations are not in this text. She's different. She's special. And the role that she's given is the same. It's God-ordained. It's good. We even see this role elsewhere in Scripture. Look at this. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Behold, God is my helper, the Lord is the upholder of my life. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Who's the helper in these verses? God. Does this sound less than? Does this sound simplistic or insulting? No way. God himself is our helper. And the woman has been called to help her husband. One author says this, when I place the term helper as a descriptor of God's activity and character, it takes on a whole new meaning. I understand that as I grow in my ability to truly help my husband, I'm not regressing into some sort of infantile servitude. I'm becoming more like God. Being a helper is one very specific way that women can mirror the glory of God. The role of the helper is an honorable role. So wives, what areas does your husband need help in? That's why God has you there. Your voice is important. Your perspective is important. If nothing else, you're a woman and you don't think like a man. And that's a good thing. Help your husband with that perspective. 
Do you see his shortcomings and opportunities to help him? Or do they just feel a bitterness in your heart toward him? Does your husband have to fight to get your time and attention away from the kids? Or does he know that he's a priority in your life? God has given you the role of helper. It's a good and honorable role. Fulfill it to his glory. Amen? The second one, follow. Here in chapter 5, verse 22, the word submit, wives submit to your husbands. It's a commonly used word. Uh, it just speaks of ordered relationships in a social structure. It's not speaking of inherent worth or value as if women should submit because they're inferior to men in some way. It's simply establishing a structure, a responsibility structure in the relationship. And as the helper in the relationship, you're going to need to follow the leading of your husband. It's a willful submission. This is not being forced. This is a willful submission to the authority of the role that God has given your husband. This sounds hard. I recognize that. And if your husband is not loving you well, this can be very hard. But for, for the ladies that are amongst us that are not married, let this serve as a caution for you. The man you choose to marry will be your leader. And you, you'll need to follow him as he leads your family. So choose wisely. I say this to our, our ladies that we do premarital counseling with. He might be an idiot, but once you marry him, he's your idiot. <laughs> All those quirks won't be so cute five years from now. <laughs> Choose wisely. Right? Wives, submit to your own husbands. One of them. Not all of them. Not all men everywhere. To yours. As we talk about submission, I've heard people express fears that this idea like subordinates all women to all men everywhere. That's not what this says. Submit to your husband as unto the Lord. How do you submit? Like I just said, as unto the Lord. The husband is the leader in the marriage, but you submit as if Christ was your leader. And part of this too is if your husband is leading sinfully, speak up. You submit as unto the Lord. Don't stay silent if your husband is persisting in sin. Follow Matthew 18. Reach out to your community group. Reach out to your church. But submission, practically, what is it? At a bare minimum, you follow his lead. You follow his lead. As, your help, as his helper, you express yourself, you share your wisdom, and you be faithful to follow his lead. Submission is more than just following, though. Anticipate his needs. What are his hopes? What are his desires? As you're going about your day making decisions, ask yourself, how can I help him? How would he want me to handle this decision that I'm making? You're his partner. You're his helper. And again, the real test of how you're doing in this area of submission will be when you and your husband disagree. When you're following his lead, you say, you know what? I'll pray for you. I love you. And I trust that God will help you make a wise decision. There's no need to fight. There's no need to get on him when things don't go well. He leads. 
Look at the end of this verse. Now, as the church submits to Christ, oh, excuse me. Here we go. Verse 6, And Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Wives, your confidence comes from God, not from your husband. Use your brain, give him your input, share your wisdom, and then trust the Lord that he is going to lead you guys. You can follow your husband's leadership because you know that ultimately God is in control. The last one, respect. At the end of chapter 5 there, verse 33, however, let each one of you Love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul chooses this word respect to summarize what he's been talking about here, in these familial roles. And this word is, it's, it's a heavier word than I think we would think of respect. There's a, there's a, there's a sense of like fear, or awe, or reverence in this word, respect. And so this is the definition that I wrote out. I think it, I think it fits. A willful recognition of the authority structure that God has put in place for the marriage. And this is the key that's, that's not in our English respect. There's a gratitude for the wisdom that the structure imparts on its participants. God is doing something in your submission. And as you respect your husband, remember that. Acknowledge the, the role, acknowledge the position that God has given him, acknowledge the responsibility that he has, but ultimately, trust God. What happens if you make a habit of lacking respect for your husband? Scripture's funny at times. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a wife who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. Don't worry, I have more. (laughs) A wise woman builds her house, but a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. It's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. I pray that this is not the story that is written about any of us wives, any of our wives, any of you wives. Let us not go down this road. Scripture speaks also of the glory of the wife and how much of a gift that she is. Let's, let's pursue that. Let's pursue that. And wives, candidly as a husband, and you're the only person in your, hus- in your husband's life that can encourage him the way that you can. You really are. There's something about your voice. There's something about your tone. God did something there that's powerful. One author said this, no man has ever crawled out from under his wife's criticism to be a better man, no matter how justified her condemnation. Help, follow, respect. These are good, God-given roles that he's given to the wives. As we look at these roles, we don't see qualifiers here. Husbands, love your wives if she submits. Or wives, Submit to your husband if he's a good love, love, if he loves you well. We don't see that. Ultimately, what we're trusting is God. We're trusting the Lord and his wisdom.
The worship team, go ahead and come out. I'm going to go over a little bit, but I think this story is worth it. Robertson McQuilkin was a writer and a speaker. He was the president of Columbia Bible College from 1968 to 1990. His wife, Muriel, struggled with Alzheimer's disease. For the last 25 years of her life, she was on the decline. And in the book, he talks about how she loved him so much. They lived near campus. It was about one mile round trip from the house to the school and back. Uh, She loved him so much that she couldn't stand to be without him. And sometimes at night, he says, sometimes at night when I helped her undress, I found bloody feet. When I told our family doctor, he choked up. Such love, he said. She would leave the house and go find him at the school and come back. And as she got worse and worse, uh, he decided to leave his post as the president of this college and go take her, to take care of his wife. In his, res- in his resignation letter, this is what he wrote. My dear wife Muriel has been failing in mental health for about 12 years. So far I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership abilities at Columbia. But recently it's become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she is with me and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It's not that she's just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she lost me and goes in search for me when I leave home. So it's clear to me that she needs, that she needs me now full time. This decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity had something to do with it. But so does fairness. She cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, the occasional flashes of wit that I used to relish so, her spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I do not have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. As Alzheimer's slowly locked away one part of my Muriel and then another, every loss for her shut down a part of me. Ministry was changing. It went from more public to more private. There was another sense of loss, however. There was, a date, there was an ache deep inside as I watched my companion slip from me. Even in this loss, however, I made a wonderful discovery. As Muriel became even more dependent on me, our love seeped deeper into unknown crevices of the heart. Though she never knew what was happening to her, As I cared for her, she responded with gratitude and cheerful contentment. It was no great effort to do the loving thing for one who was altogether lovable. My imprisonment turned out to be a delightful liberation to love more fully than I had ever known. We found the chains of confining circumstance to be not instruments of torture, but bonds to hold us close together. But there was an even greater liberation, and it has to do with God's love. No one ever needed me like Muriel, and no one ever responded to my efforts as totally as she. It's the nearest thing I've experienced on a human plane to what my relationship with God was designed to be. 
God's unfailing love poured out in constant care of helpless me. Wow. In the midst of the suffering that, these, that they endured together, here's what he pulls. This is how God loves me. If you're currently unmarried, is this what you want? Is this what you're seeking in marriage? A selflessness? A sacrifice? A giving of yourself? And for those of us who are married, this is what we've been called to. To love and to give as Christ has done. Young people, be aware. Culture is not telling you this. Culture is not telling you this. Social media is not reinforcing this. People should actually be able to see the gospel modeled in how husbands love wives and how wives submit to their husbands. May we be faithful to that calling. Amen? Father, what a calling you've given to husbands and wives. Grant us the grace, Lord, to fulfill this calling in a way that honors your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.